The next day takeaways, Keyboard Kimura podcast, E. Spencer Kite, looking back at UFC 288 from Saturday at Prudential Center in Newark, New Jersey, headlined, closed out by Aljamain Sterling retaining the UFC bantamweight title, split decision win over Henry Cejudo, 48-47 across the board, 2-1 for Aljamain Sterling. And the first thing we have to talk about is Sterling's win and his legacy. Watching the fight live on Saturday night, doing the recaps for the UFC website, writing 10 things for Keyboard Kimura, I had the fight 48-47. Gave Cejudo the second and the fifth, as I think many people did, and I didn't think it was a particularly close fight in the sense of, of expecting there to be a split decision. I expected it to be 48-47 or maybe even 49-46 across the board for Aljamain Sterling. Regardless of, of your thoughts on the scoring and, and how the fight, how the judges saw the fight, the end result is that Aljamain Sterling has now won nine straight, which is the most in bantamweight division history. He has three straight tight successful title defenses, also the most in bantamweight division history. And it's a third straight former champion that he's beaten in Henry Cejudo, joining Piotr Jan and TJ Dillashaw. He's 15 and three overall in the UFC with loads of top 15 wins. And it feels like despite all of that, despite all the numbers, all the metrics, all the counting stats, if you will, pointing to Aljamain Sterling being clearly the greatest bantamweight in UFC history, we all seem to have a hard time getting there. And I think it's a lot of what Henry Cejudo said after the fact in the cage of like, you know, you watch Aljo and you think, ah, I can go out there and beat him. And then it's, it's tougher in real life and in practice when you're in there with him, than you think it's going to be. And I think there's also a little bit of trouble for Aljo in that none of these wins is ever that definitive, undeniable kind of performance. I do think that race certainly plays a part in this, and I would be remiss to not mention it. I think the fact that he is an African-American man, Jamaican heritage, proud of that, wears it loudly, doesn't doesn't hide any of who he is ever, rubs a lot of people the wrong way, sits uncomfortably with some people. I think that his brand of cocky, his brand of confidence also doesn't sit well with some people, even though that same approach is acceptable when others do it and celebrated when others do it. But I think in terms of performance, the thing that's missing so far in these championship fights, and there have been four of them for Sterling in succession, is that we haven't had kind of that Sandhagen performance, right? We all remember his fight with Corey Sandhagen, and it's the one that got him the championship opportunity in the first place. Sprints across the cage and is on Corey Sandhagen's back very quickly secures that rear naked choke. It takes about 90 seconds at most for that fight. And it is the unquestionable, okay, Aljo is next. He is the guy. And since then, in his four championship fights, we've had the disqualification win over Piotr Jan in a fight where he started well, but was fading hard before getting kneed in the head. Certainly a lot of people felt he was embellishing the impact of that blow. 
and selling the impact of that blow to get the disqualification, although no one wants to win a belt that way. We had a split decision in the rematch between the two, where again, very close fight. I think I did a rewatch of it before I dipped off keyboard Kimura last year at the at the tail end of last year. Again, looking back at it, it's a close fight. Aljo wins the first three rounds. Piotr Jan wins the last two. And so you come away from the fight, the way the momentum of the fight plays isn't even that Aljo is the ascending crescendo champion. It's that he puts three rounds in the bank and then holds on. The fight with TJ Dillashaw obviously is a dominant performance, but it's marred by the fact that TJ Dillashaw, as we learn, has a massive shoulder injury where his shoulder keeps falling out of socket and has to be put back into place. And it happened throughout his training camp. And so it carries this huge asterisk where it's hard to really give Aljamain Sterling full marks for that victory, despite doing exactly what he needs to do, exactly what anyone in his position could hope to do. And that's go out and finish TJ Dillashaw rather quickly. Which brings us to Saturday night, Henry Cejudo, UFC 288. Again, it's one of those fights where Sterling starts relatively well and looks good through until about the fifth round when the challenger is the one dictating the terms and having all of the success. And I know people will point to the scorecards where one of the judges scored the fifth round for Aljamain Sterling. That became the deciding factor in this fight, which is crazy to me. And, you know, a thing that I will probably sit down and rewatch this fight as well some point this week, just to get another look at it. But more than the scoring, it's that the way, the way these fights present themselves for Sterling, the way he presents himself, himself, excuse me, in these fights sort of takes away from that ability to just really get behind him all the way and say, this is definitively without question, the best bantamweight in the world. And maybe the best bantamweight of all time, because there just aren't those performances, right? For as poorly as things have gone for Cody Garbrandt over the last several years, his championship win over Dominic Cruz resonates louder and longer than any of Aljamain Sterling's victories at this point. TJ Dillashaw's wins over Cody Garbrandt, admittedly, potentially tainted by steroid allegations and and a later positive test for Dillashaw, resonate and stand out in such a way and are so clear and demonstrative that one man is better than the other, which we're just not quite getting from Sterling. Now, I'm not a guy, and like, I'm not going to sit here and say he needs to do X, Y, and Z. It's not his fault. All you can do and all you have to do is beat the guy they put in front of you and he's getting the wins. But that's what makes us, or at least that's what makes me and I think others hesitant to really buy into him as the best bantamweight in the world and arguably the best bantamweight of all time. If next time out, we get a smash job. We get a definitive go out, run through somebody where there's no asterisks, there's no questions, there's no doubts. I think we will see some of this change. I think there are going to be things, as I said earlier, 
that are always going to work against Aljamain Sterling. There is going to be a pocket of the population that for whatever reason, regardless of record, regardless of results is always going to dislike and try to diminish his success. I think that is a fact. I will argue it with you. If you would like, feel free to reach out. We can have the conversation, but I think it's also that we just haven't seen that unquestionably dominant, no asterisks, no anything hanging over the fight kind of performance in these championship fights that we look for that really elevates an athlete as champion to that unquestioned best in the division, maybe the best in the history of the division. And I hope Aljamain Sterling can get there. I hope he can get one of those performances because right now he feels destined to be a guy that far too many people don't appreciate until a little later on when he's done and gone from the division and probably the sport. Before he can be done and gone from the sport, he has some business to handle with Sean O'Malley, it seems, as O'Malley was brought into the octagon last night in the midst of sort of interviewing Aljamain Sterling and Henry Cejudo and things of that nature. And it was dumb and completely unnecessary because it just kind of felt hastily put together and it left or ignored a bunch of questions I have about that matchup. So first and foremost for me, it would be different if O'Malley was around and available throughout the week and we were, we were getting him presented as this is the guy that's fighting the winner, no matter what happens. So here's Sean, you can ask him any number of things. That wasn't the case. Two, we also had a fight last year in October, the same night that Aljamain Sterling beat TJ Dillashaw. Sean O'Malley went out and beat Piotr Jan in a fight that was billed as the winner gets the next title shot. And then for whatever reason, reasons that haven't been explained to the general public, reasons that to the best of my knowledge, no one has asked or had answered by Sean O'Malley or Dana White in the UFC. That didn't happen. We got Henry Cejudo. And so if you're not going to address why Sean O'Malley wasn't the guy in the cage on Saturday night, and you're just going to roll him out sort of last minute as let's bring him in here and do this thing. Just skip it. Dana White said afterwards that he's had better ideas and that went sideways and awry. It always does. When's the last time one of these things was useful and effective and felt really organic and good and got you more excited for the upcoming fight? Like if you weren't already excited to see Sean O'Malley and Aljamain Sterling I don't think that nonsense on Saturday night is going to change your perspective, is going to suddenly get you invigorated. The main takeaway for most people was that Marab Dwalishvili is a king for stealing Sean O'Malley's jacket and parading around the arena in it the rest of the night. Like, we, we would have been better off, again, we would have been better off having Sean O'Malley out there and available throughout the week. And I get why he doesn't want to come out throughout the week and just kind of walk around and be around and come out on Wednesday for media or Thursday for media. I get it. I understand. But then don't have him sit front row and just 
throw him in the cage and roll him into the cage once everything is done. Let Aljamain Sterling have his moment. Let him speak to Sean O'Malley. Just one on, like himself on the microphone with Joe Rogan standing there. Let him call out Sean O'Malley and say, this guy was supposed to be in here. If he's ready, he can come get some in four months, five months, whatever it's going to be. And it's looking like it might be three months, which feels a little bit like a quick turnaround. Let Henry Cejudo have his moment where the UFC now likes to talk to vanquished fighters all the time and give them the opportunity to have something to say. We didn't need Sean O'Malley in there. And Dana's reaction to it at the post-fight press conference at his media availability after the fact, hopefully will be a signal that we're not going to get any more of these in the future. Speaking of futures, I don't think we see Henry Cejudo fight again. I think you have to look at these last three years as a complete missed opportunity. This feels like, and looks in, in hindsight, looks like a bad play working out just about as poorly as possible. So Henry Cejudo announces his retirement in the cage with Joe Rogan after stopping Dominic Cruz, successfully defending his bantamweight title. He is a two-division champion. He is triple C, and he's at the top of, of two divisions, his division especially. Everything is cresting upwards, and it feels like he tried to leverage all of that into a bigger deal, bigger fights, as you as you should as, as you are want to do. And as he is certainly allowed and, and able to do. And the UFC was happy to just let him dip. The UFC was happy to just be like, great, we'll, we'll move forward without you. And I think when you look back at that, that play, that decision, that move, very similar to the Francis Ngannou situation this year, the UFC has told us time and again that they are happy to move on from champions, from superstars. It's not about giving you what you need to keep you around because, oh, will you please stick around? That's not how they operate. And Cejudo thought and took the chance that maybe he would be different, and he wasn't. And so then he had to kind of eat it for a while, right? You can't say, I'm out. You're not going to have to hear from me anymore. And then six months later, be back. You have to kind of go away for a little bit. And and Cejudo didn't go anywhere. I made this joke repeatedly for the first year of Henry Cejudo's air quotes retirement that we heard from him more post-retirement and saying that he was going to go away than we did when he was an active fighter because he needed to stay in the public eye, right? You knew a comeback was eventually going to happen. And so he needed to remain prominent and at the fore in some of these conversations, much the same way that Conor McGregor constantly throws himself into conversations so that media can pick his quotes and pick his tweets up and say, look, Conor McGregor is interested in this guy, that every big fight still involves some reference to him. For Cejudo, it was anything below about 45. So every Alexander Volkanovsky fight, he had something to say. Every bantamweight title fight, he had something to say. Even the featherweights, he would chirp in a little bit. He just kept himself prominent, did a bunch of coaching, had success at it. That kept him in the foreground. 
But then he comes back this weekend, and after three years away, the athletic window's closed just enough that he can't quite get over the hump against the best guy in the division. He's just missing by little half beats, little half measures. This was a competitive fight, and maybe if they do it again in six months and the rust is gone and the rhythm is back and the timing is there and the experience of being in the cage now with a longer, rangier guy like Aljamain Sterling, knowing what he brings to the table is something he's already taken in. Maybe he can get that victory and beat a guy like Aljo. But Cejudo has never struck me and said this himself in the octagon. He's not a guy that wants to stick around and just kind of fight whoever. If it's not gold, if he's not first, he's last. And at 36 with a young daughter and certainly some coaching opportunities where he he seems to have been very successful and very effective. I don't know that he's a guy that that hangs around for non-title fights, either against top-end guys in the bantamweight division or going up to fly, sorry, to featherweight, where the size difference, physically, the stature difference becomes even more apparent. He looked like he was having a lot of trouble dealing with the length and range of a five foot seven Aljamain Sterling on Saturday. And he was. What's he going to do against now? Alexander Volkanovsky, fine, not the biggest featherweight, but just about everybody else is at least five seven, if not bigger, with long reaches and long legs and more power and more physicality. So I don't know that there's anything there for him, especially when he would most likely need to win his way into some of these opportunities. I think Saturday is the last we see of Henry Cejudo as an active competitor. It's been fun. He maximized every ounce of this through the Dominic Cruz fight, came back and got a championship opportunity. I don't begrudge him that. I wish him well, and we'll see if if I'm right in a few months' time. Co-main event, Bilal Muhammad gets a unanimous decision win over Gilbert Burns in a title eliminator in the welterweight division. It was a very good performance from Muhammad, who stayed within himself, respected the dangers that Gilbert Burns presented, and won handily, securing himself that championship opportunity. Anyone that wants to be critical of this result, of his performance, to me, needs to keep that same energy when other fighters don't take big risks and big spots. Because Bilal Muhammad isn't the first guy to do that and won't be the last guy to do that. Like, it feels to me like we are very selective in who we okay being cautious and when. So, if it's someone we like facing a big danger in a championship fight, okay, I get them being a little bit passive, a little bit risk-averse. But against anybody else, we want them to be balls to the wall and chasing stuff. And so to to turn around here and look at Bilal Muhammad and say, well, he should have done more. He did what he needed to do. And as far as the, well, things would be different if Gilbert Burns doesn't injure his shoulder. It's a classic diminishing tactic to me, and it's just designed to take away and not give credit to Bilal Muhammad for the win and sort of like ignore the reality of what happened. Would it have been different if Gilbert Burns 
wasn't injured? We don't know because Gilbert Burns got injured. That's what happened. And it's not Bilal Muhammad's fault. He's not responsible to do anything more once he recognizes or finds out or, or sees that Gilbert Burns is hurt because Gilbert Burns is still dangerous. Yes, less so when he's fighting with, with one arm and he can't really use his left arm, his left hand. But to put that suddenly on Bilal, like it's it's wholly his responsibility and to take away elements of this victory from him because of that feels pretty pretty much like you're telling on yourself in terms of what you think of Bilal and how you want these things to progress. Guys get hurt, men and women get hurt in fights all the time. So like, it's just a function of things that happen. And again, similar to the Aljamain Sterling thing, you can only beat the guys in front of you and he's beaten five straight and hasn't lost in 10 fights. So to sit here on Sunday and say, yeah, but when he just took a fight on short notice after fasting through Ramadan and beat a guy that has already fought for the title, was coming in on two wins, is a clear established top five guy and say, yeah, but he should probably do more is just asking way too much. And we need to stop with this stuff. Bilal Muhammad is the rightful, deserving, merited next title challenger in the welterweight division. I hate that he has to wait for Colby Covington to get a shot. Ideally, something happens that Colby Covington can't fight in October or November, whenever that bout with Leon Edwards comes together, and Bilal jumps right to the front of the line, rather than having to wait until next February or March or April, whatever it may be. But for right now, he has done everything that has been asked of him over the last five fights and over the last ten fights, and he deserves this opportunity, and I'm happy to see him get it. Featured bout on the main card, Yan Zhao Nan stops Jessica Andrade in the first round, and I feel like the strawweight title picture now sort of illustrates what Gilbert Burns spoke with me about ahead of UFC 288 when explaining why he opted to take the fight with Bilal Muhammad. So part of his logic was, if I wait, others can put up wins and kind of jump me as a result of my being inactive, of my sort of sitting on my position. And he mentioned, look, Bilal's going to keep fighting. Shavkat Rachmanov can keep fighting. Kamaru Usman's going to want to get back in the mix. So if I sit on the sidelines and two or all three of those guys go out and put up victories, now suddenly I'm behind all of them. He understood the risks. He rolled the dice. It is what it is. But I feel like that's sort of what is happening here at strawweight as Yan Zhao Nan now goes out, picks up a second straight victory and a terrific knockout win over Jessica Andrade, while Amanda Lemos, who lost to Andrade but beat Marina Rodriguez, is kind of sitting there like, man, I thought I had next locked up. I thought I was in the garden seat and going to get this title shot. And now Jan has come out and, and earned this victory that certainly leapfrogs me, at least in my in my estimation, especially and in part because Lamosh's big win is the knockout over Marina Rodriguez, who lost on Saturday as well and has subsequently now lost two straight fights. This is a perfect illustration of why fighters need to stay active. 
fighters at the top of the division, even in contender spots and championship matchups need to stay fresh because we shouldn't lose people like Marina Rodriguez. We shouldn't constantly be putting another opportunity in front of someone like Amanda Lemos because now they have to keep fighting to maintain a position that they've already solidified. And so if we don't constantly get these rematches and the same people fighting for titles over and over, we're progressing through divisions and Lamosh has a shot and now Jan Jaunan can have a shot and maybe even Marina Rodriguez gets her shot last year rather than being in a very uncomfortable position right now where she's going to watch somebody that she beat at the start of last year go on and fight for a title probably later this year. Obviously, this isn't a, I beat you, so I should be here. Things continue, they progress, they take fights, wins and losses happen. Yan Jaunan has clearly continued to get better. But I think the way that all of this has shaken out sort of is the perfect embodiment and encapsulation of why I'm always shouting about not wanting to see fighters go through the gauntlet seeing the same matchups at the top of these divisions and getting fresh names into championship pairings and big fight opportunities rather than the same sets of familiar names and former champions. This was a tremendous performance from Yan Jonan, who looked great from the jump. Quick, fast, sharp, hands were on point, and she made Andrade pay for being wild and she should, she should absolutely, in my opinion, get the next championship opportunity. First of two featherweight bouts on the main card at UFC 288. Mavsar Ivloyev continues his unbeaten run, but, but Diego Lopez also shows that he belongs. So this is one of those interesting fights to me where it's this weird little hiccup that we have, I think, as critics and observers and, and people that discuss MMA as a sport where we want to praise the person that turns up on short notice and gives a good accounting of themselves as Diego Lopez did certainly. And, and deservedly we want deserves praise and I'll get to him in a second, but we also want to kind of take away from the fighter that was already positioned on the card when they don't go out and just smoke the short notice replacement or they struggle in times or they're put in tough spots as Ivloyev was and it sort of, to me, ignores the fact that he also was dealing with an opponent change on three days notice and somebody who is a very different brand of fighter than Bryce Mitchell is in Diego Lopez. First and foremost, I want to stay with Ivloyev because I think this is going to be one of those situations where even though he is 7-0 and in the UFC and 17-0 and overall, the way this fight played out, and again, the way this fight ended with Diego Lopez attacking a knee bar that Mavsari Vloyev had to sort of ride out, people are going to be a little bit hesitant to continue saying he is part of the future of the division. And I think that's a mistake. This was still a very good performance. There are certainly some small things that he needs to tighten up if he's going to be a contender. He could have a little bit better defensive boxing. He could be a little more cautious as he's coming forward. He could take a little more care in some of these grappling entanglements instead of just being so confident 
in his own abilities. But he's 7-0 in the UFC. And he's 17-0 overall. And he's really freaking good. And so, yes, this was a more difficult fight than a lot of people, myself included, anticipated on Saturday. But it's still a really good performance and another strong victory from a 29-year-old kid that hasn't lost inside the octagon. Does he need to face one of those names that's, you know, not too many steps ahead of him in the division in order to really keep progressing this forward? Absolutely. Are any of those guys going to be in a rush to sign on the dotted line to face this kid? No, they're not. They're going to be looking for fellow veterans. They're going to be looking for favorable matchups. And Mavsari Vloyev is not that for anyone. On the other side of things, Diego Lopez showed he belonged. And I think that surprised a lot of people, which is a little surprising because he had beaten some good comp prior to being on Dana White's Contender Series, where he lost to Joe Anderson Britu, who has done relatively well in the UFC since losing his debut to Bill Algio. And shout out to Craig Allen and Austin for helping me and enjoying a little cyclical play of how good is Joe Anderson Britu, how good is Andre Feely, how good is Bill Algio, how good is then... Joe Anderson Britu roundabout with me on Twitter last night as we went through it. Lopez is 28 years old. He's been a big time finisher on the regional circuit. He's been around the game for a bit. He's the grappling coach, I believe, of Alexa Grosso, the new flyweight champion. He's shown he can hang. He's now shown he can hang with the mid-pack of the featherweight division at the absolute least. And so... While this was a a short notice opportunity and he wasn't expected to do as well as he did, I think being really caught off guard that this guy is a good fighter sort of feels like people not necessarily doing enough of the research and enough of the look. And some of that falls on me too, like myself included, as I said, I thought Ivloyev would come out here and run through him just because three days notice to face that kid is real difficult proposition. So full marks to Diego Lopez for giving him hell on Saturday. But this guy was always good enough to be in this position. And I'm glad that everybody really knows that and really sees that now, including me. Main card opener, we got a smart tactical performance from Charles Jordan and against Crone Gracie, unanimous decision win. For the French-Canadian, snapping a two-fight skid, getting him back in the win column, getting him moving forward. Anybody booing Jordan or being critical of this effort, frankly, to me, complete idiots. Like, this is the best he's looked, and I like that he acknowledged the immaturity of previous performances and how that reflects in his record. But like, as he said in the cage... What do you want me to do? I'm facing Crone Gracie. You want me to go down there and mess around with this dude on the ground and give him opportunities to do what he does best? That would be dumb. I said that going in. I was a little bit worried going in that that's what we would see. That Charles Jordan would be like, look, I'm a black belt too. I can I can hang with this guy on the ground. And instead, he did everything right. He stayed tight. He worked back to his feet as quickly as he could. He avoided danger. 
great performance. And if this is the version of Jordan we get going forward, fighting this way, being smart, playing to his strengths, not letting his ego take over, I think he can still be dangerous because he's 27. He's quick. He's got some pop. He's a well-rounded fighter. And on the other side of things, Crone Gracie is just isn't meant to be at this level, at least not against these kinds of guys. As they talked about in the broadcast, as we knew going in, his game is archaic and ineffective against the highly skilled fighters of today. Are there some guys he can beat in the UFC featherweight division? Absolutely. Are there some fights that I would still like to see? Sure, if you want to do the grappler's delight with Ryan Hall, I'm all for it because they'll just get out there and make a handshake agreement that they're just going to start on the ground and it'll be great. And like, we'll just get ADCCs in the octagon. Let's go. But against somebody like Jordan that is well-rounded or anybody of his ilk, it's just not going to work for Crone Gracie because he hasn't evolved. He hasn't developed. He hasn't added on anything to his game. And I think seeing Damian Maya in his corner, for me, that's always the guy I point to of world-class jiu-jitsu that had other pieces and added other pieces that made him continually dangerous. He had the wrestling piece. He worked on the boxing tremendously to his own detriment at, at one point where he got away from being a grappler. But Gracie hasn't done that. And unless he does, this is what we're going to see every time he steps into the octagon. So the next day takeaways on keyboard Kimura talking about UFC 288 from the Prudential Center in Newark, New Jersey on Saturday night, moving to the preliminary cards, which closed out with a first round knockout win for Matt Frivola, the steamroller over Drew Dober. And then Matt Frivola called out Patty Pimblett. And I kind of think you have to make that fight now if you're the UFC. Let me be clear here. I don't think the UFC is going to make this fight. I said it in 10 things, which you could go and read on the newsletter now. Please subscribe. Thank you very much. But this is now two straight fights where Matt Frivola has knocked out somebody in the first round and called out Patty Pimblett. The first time, he did it after knocking out Otman Azatar, knocking him from the ranks of the unbeaten. And he did it on Saturday night after knocking out a top 15 guy who came in on a three-fight winning streak, all three of those wins inside the distance. To me, if the UFC doesn't make it, and as I said, I don't think they will, and I don't think Patty has any interest in this fight, it makes Patty Pimblett look really weak. And here's what I mean. Patty's parading around and being paraded around as sort of this world-beater big deal... UFC superstar, charismatic personality guy. But he's ducking every callout. And he's not really carrying himself like a professional in between fights with the amount of weight he gains and things of that nature and, and sticking to training and such and such. And he's out here wanting to run it back with Jared Gordon, who he beat. And to his own statement after the fight, he thought he beat handily. And so you've got a list of guys to choose from that have called you out. Matt Frivola has now done it on ESPN in front of the largest audience possible after knocking out Drew Dober and you're not going to fight him. 
And the UFC most likely isn't going to push for Patty to fight him. The fact that Frivola wants that fight instead of lobbying for a ranked opponent underscores the difficult position the UFC is in with Pimlet right now. Because they've sort of backed themselves into this corner, and Patty has as well, where it's more meaningful to fight him for a lot of guys than it is to face a top 15 fighter. And yet, they won't put Patty in there with any of these guys. It was 100% the right call for Matt Frivola to jump on that microphone and call out Patty Pimblett again. It would be a terrific main event, co-main event of the July 22nd show in London. I don't think it's going to happen and it's going to make Patty look real weak when he gets booked with somebody that isn't Matt Frivola next time out. Next up, the light heavyweight division, Kennedy and Zechiku gets a second round technical submission win over Devin Clark and just looks like the fighter that keeps improving. This was my question going into this event, this fight for Kennedy and Zechiku was, is he a guy that we're going to see that he's continuing to take steps forward and he's continuing to approve it. It feels pretty safe to say that the answer is yes. So Kennedy is soon to be 31 years old, but he's only 15 fights into his career. He's only been a pro for seven and a half years and started at zero. Like he's not somebody that came into MMA with a wrestling background or a kickboxing background, or even like did Taekwondo at the strip mall dojo like I did as a kid. He came in at zero and has been built from zero to who he is today by Safe Saud and the crew at Fortis MMA. And I know it's taken some time, but he is another reminder that we need to afford these young athletes and these inexperienced athletes time to get there and be okay with some setbacks. Be okay with learning on the job a little bit. Be okay with them not being finished products at 25, 26, 27, when they're 9, 10, 12 fights into their career. He did exceptionally well on Saturday and showed in that fight that only lasted seven and a half minutes, the elements of development that you want to see from a fighter like him. Not only did he cover up well to protect himself after getting stunned in the first, but he immediately rallied and came right back after Devin Clark to where if he didn't draw level and like lose the round, but go into it, go into the second with all the momentum, then he won the round. And then in the second was able to just go out there. And as soon as Devin Clark presented the opportunity for that ninja choke, Kennedy was on it and it was locked and it was deep. It was cinched. We were done. The win over Iwan Kutilaba before this, is aging okay, given that Kutilaba won last time out against Tanner Boser. The win a few fights back against Carlos Alberg keeps looking better and better as Black Jag keeps developing and putting up victories. He's got three in a row. He fights next week, should make it four in a row there. And Zechiku feels like somebody in a division where there's always opportunity and there's always room for fighters to move forward. He feels like somebody that is going to get that shot next. We're going to see him against a ranked opponent if he's not ranked himself. And while I don't know where this goes, I'm going to bet on and be invested in and interested in the continued development 
an improvement of somebody that has shown the raw materials and now seems to be figuring it all out. Welterweight division, Chaos Williams gets a split decision win over newcomer Rolando Bedoya. Uh, 29-28 twice for Williams, 30-27 once for Bedoya. And to me, the the main takeaway here is that Rolando Bedoya is going to be fun to watch, if nothing else. Like, all of these shoot-the-box Diego Lima guys are fun to watch. Bedoya showed on Saturday that he's another name to add to that list, at the very least. I thought he did enough over the second and third to beat Chaos Williams. I thought the first was even close. I don't have any problem with that 30-27 for Bedoya that is the dissenting score in this split decision. I thought he looked really good. He looked comfortable. He didn't look like a debuting fighter that hadn't faced a lot of competition on the regional circuit. He looked like a guy that was happy to go out there and trade shots with a big power hitter in Chaos Williams, who continues to be kind of maddeningly inconsistent and maddeningly not as good as we all kind of want him to be. I saw a lot of, well, if he ever learns to XYZ in talking about Williams yesterday on Twitter during that fight, feels like a guy that if he hasn't sorted that stuff out now, I don't know that it's coming unless he uproots from where he is. And that's not a knock on his team at Murcielago. It's just the reality of things, right? Expecting fighters to continue to change and grow and develop. It's hard. It's difficult. How much of you or I changed since we were 27, 28, 29 in terms of our habits and way of doing things? It's great if we've changed a bunch of things. I know I certainly have, but it's taken a lot of work and that's difficult. But as far as Bedoya goes, you want to give me a 26-year-old that is happy to go out there and just sling him? I'll watch that guy anytime. Anytime. I came into this expecting Chaos Williams to run through him because Bedoya hadn't fought much competition at all on the regional circuit on his way to a 14-1 record. I thought he was going to be cannon fodder. Proved me completely wrong on Saturday. And now he is highlighted, circled the whole nine yards. Can't wait to see his next fight. Welcome to the UFC, Rolando Bedoya. I am now in your corner, looking forward to seeing your next appearance. Strawweight division, Verna Jandiroba grinds her way to a victory against Marina Rodriguez. Uh, 29-28 twice, 30-27 once. It's weird because I want to say that Jandiroba is everything Mackenzie Dern wishes she could be. But Dern beat her a couple years back, so that doesn't quite work. But I think the the fundamentals of that argument are there because Jandiroba understands how to get inside. She understands how to get to the spots she wants to get to. She is durable and scrappy and willing to throw and can land some shots on the feet in ways that we haven't quite seen from Mackenzie Dern yet. Again, although Dern has beaten her, so it sort of undercuts my assessment. But Jandy Doba looked good on Saturday. She outgrappled Marina Rodriguez, second straight win, should now be entrenched as sort of the dangerous grappling threat that any hopeful or any regrouping contender has to deal with in the strawweight division, which is a great place to be in. I know we all 
want to see everybody and project everybody. If you're not a champion, then you're not anything. It's great. She is now going to be the seven through 12 straw weight in a very competitive division for the next couple of years. And as I say, all too frequently, there is nothing that is good work. If you can get it, that is a great career to build for yourself. If you can get it. And it doesn't mean that there's not still room for her to grow. Personally, I don't think that she becomes a contender because the athleticism that shows through at the top end isn't quite there. She's not athletically on the level of a Zhang Wei Li or even a Yan Zhao Nan who won later in the night and looked sharp and crisp and fluid and twitchy. She doesn't have that, but she's a tough out. She's durable. She's scrappy. And this is a very good win. The other takeaway from this fight is that timing and decision-making worked against Marina Rodriguez. And after being on the cusp of contention last year, she's now on a two-fight skid. And as I said earlier, going to watch somebody she beat work her way into a title shot in Yan Jonan. This is exactly what Gilbert Burns was afraid of waiting and getting himself stuck in. So he rolled the dice on himself, lost a fight to Bilal Muhammad. That's fine. He controlled his own destiny. Marina Rodriguez didn't get the chance to do that. And now here she is on the outside looking in, probably never going to get herself back into the championship mix at 115. Early prelims wrapped in the heavyweight division. Parker's Parker Porter, first round TKO win, two minutes, 10 seconds over Braxton Smith. And we got big Braxton Smith problems. So I'm not a big, and I've got air quotes going here in the studio, UFC caliber guy, because I think people gatekeeping with that sort of lingo with that sort of term is generally dumb, but also ignores sort of how much the landscape and the sport itself has shifted since the bar that everybody wants to uphold was actually set, right? What it means to be UFC caliber is so different today on May 7th, 2023, than it was five years ago, eight years ago, 10, 12, 15 years ago. And we have to accept that and acknowledge that and roll with it and evolve with it. That being said, to me, Smith had no business being in the octagon this weekend. And it showed. I said that going in, that this was one of those, here's a guy that got five straight wins on the regional circuit, fighting scrubs, including beating one guy twice. And that shouldn't be the way that you get into the UFC. Understanding that the heavyweight talent pool is shallow, both in the UFC and on the regional circuit. But he was done in about 90 seconds after taking a couple of good pokes and winging some wild shots of his own. And that just shouldn't be what happens at this level. To me, Braxton Smith was a perfect candidate to go on the contender series this fall. Like, let him continue to rack up wins on the regional circuit, continue to build that highlight reel, and then roll him out there on the contender series, tell his story about his father playing in the NFL and his football aspirations and transitioning to fighting and taking eight years off and coming back and starting to murk dudes. Perfect setup for him. You can get him a favorable matchup. You can get him in the gym working on the holes that are in his game now 
progressing to that point of being on the contender series where you then get the test to see if he's worthy of being here, right? That's what the contender series is supposed to be. Are you ready? Are you capable of fighting at this level? You shouldn't get rolled into the UFC in this position of, all right, let's see what you can do. I I don't need, let's see what you can do when you get to the UFC. I want to have a sense of what you can do when you get here. And I knew going in that it was going to look this way. Shouts to Parker Porter for handling his business quickly, effectively, and looking trim while doing it. I would like to see Braxton Smith now go backwards. And I know it's not going to happen, but if it, if it's me, if I'm the one in, in control of the matchmaking book in the UFC, I stick that dude on Contender Series and say, show me that you you deserve another shot in the octagon. I don't think it happens, but it feels like the right steps. Middleweight division, Ikram Alaskarov knocks out Phil Hawes. Also, first round, two minutes and 10 seconds. So we went back to back. First round, two minute, 10 second victories. The takeaway here, man, is just give this guy a shot. Give him a ranked guy next. And here's here's how I'll set this up. So when the UFC announced the main event fight between Sean Strickland and Avis Magomedov for later this summer, I laughed at the backlash because middleweight's a wasteland. We desperately need new contenders at 85. And if it weren't a main event, nobody would really say anything because it it feels like a fight that makes sense because Magomedov is 32 years old. He's 30 fights in. He kicked Dustin Stoltzfus in the face and out of the UFC in his debut and like is the prime candidate for don't bring this dude along slowly. Let's just see what we have. And a fight with Sean Strickland feels like pretty much the perfect way to figure that out. Sean is the litmus test in this division. If you're good enough to beat him, then you're in the mix. And if you're not, that tells us where we are and we don't have to mess around with Abus Megamedov getting three or four wins against middling middleweights before we get there. Let's find out now. And the same goes for Aleskarov, who demolished Phil Haas on Saturday. Took a bunch of good shots. Phil Haas looked good to start. Aleskarov took them all and then landed. So it was a head kick that started it and Phil kind of didn't wear it well. And then a one-two detonated on his chin and we were done. Aleskarov is 14-1. and one. His only loss is to Hamzat Chemaev. He's 30 years old. He's a former combat sambo world champion. He's won six straight, five finishes. Like, why slow play this? Why roll him out there against a Marc-Andre Barrio or Julian Marquez or someone in that vein next time out when you can get him in there with Roman Delize or Kelvin Gastelum and just see where he stands? Let's find out. Inst- again, instead of slow playing these guys that have experience and upside and get good wins, give them these tests, give them these opportunities because if they win and they pass those tests, then we're on to something and we didn't wait a year and a half to get there. Opening fight of the night, a catchweight bout between middleweights Claudio Hibero and Joseph Holmes. Hibero wins in the second round, TKO, three minutes, 21 seconds in. My takeaway here is that I don't want to see any more 
contenders versus contenders fights inside of three appearances in the UFC. So hear me out. If the idea of contender series is finding new talent and seeing if we can unearth some fighters that become contenders and factors and even just rotational people in the UFC, don't just hustle them in there with each other so that one automatically gets a win and one automatically gets a loss until they're several fights down. Let them face other entry-level talent that is already on the roster, whether that's somebody that got signed short notice, somebody that's been there for a couple of fights and is one and one or one and two or two and one, something along those lines. And the idea, the reason three makes sense to me before getting them in there together having them have three fights is that they're either three and zero, and therefore fighting an established name. So you don't have to do contender versus contender or both guys are three and zero. both, both athletes are three and zero, and it feels like time that one of them goes forward and we, we hit that crossroads and then we go or they're two and one need to prove where they stand one and two and need a win to stick around and sort of show that they belong again where we get to these proper crossroads point, where we get to these proper, feel a little more comfortable with them meeting points. Or they're 0-3 and likely already gone from the promotion and we don't have to deal with it. Like, facing another contender series grad doesn't really tell us anything. I'm no, I have no better understanding of who Claudio Hibero is as a fighter now after Saturday because Joseph Holmes is another contender series guy who hasn't shown me anything. And I say that as the guy that picked Joseph Holmes and had wagers on Joseph Holmes. And so lost money, fictional money, hypothetical money, numbers on a spreadsheet money, right out of the gate on Joe Holmes. So I would have much rather have seen Claudio Hibero face that same sort of list of guys that I mentioned earlier for Aliskarov not needing to fight the Eric Anders, Marc-Andre Berrio, Julian Marquez's of the world then face another contender series guy. There's enough contender series grads that we can keep them apart and have them face people that are already in the UFC, already on the roster for a few fights before we get them in there against one another to see who moves forward. That's it for the takeaways. First week back on Keyboard Kimura in the books. It is going to be another sort of partial week back this week as we roll in to the fight card in Charlotte headlined by Jarzinho Rosenstreich and Jailton Almeida. Won't be a full week of content. I've got some assignments and some projects that I need to work on, get some other stuff lined up, but we are back. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, to the newsletter, go to the Substack, spencerkite.substack.com. Sign up there, five bucks a month, 50 bucks a year, or sign up for free keeps you from the paywalled stuff. There will be paywalled stuff coming in the future to make that incentivized for you and to thank the people that have already contributed subscriptions. There will be a bunch of stuff up on the YouTube this week. As always, one question, 10 things, the Friday double dip back on Saturday, looking back at what happens in Charlotte. I like that fight card. It is a very good fight card. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting. Appreciate you. Love you. Be good to yourself. Be good to one another. Take care of yourselves. And we'll talk to you soon.